So today is, uh, of course, we're a week away from our main Christmas service, which will be next Sunday, Christmas Eve. And so I wanted to step away from our study through Acts and just kind of pick up the Christmas theme today. But you know, as I was thinking about a Christmas message, I was just kind of thinking about, um, you know, maybe just somehow a, kind of a different take on it or a different angle. Um, you know, every year as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, preacher, you know, every year when you come to Christmas, it's like, okay, yes, Christmas, this is, you know, this is the text, these are the messages. And so creative's probably not the best word, but you know, you want, you want something that's sometimes a little, little fresh or, you know, something a little different. So anyway, as I was thinking about that, uh, it just came to my mind somehow, I don't even know how the thought originally got there, uh, but just to think of Christmas in terms of a rescue mission, because that's really what it is, if you think about it. Christmas really is God's great rescue mission. So as I, I thought about that, I thought, yeah, that's, that's the way I want to approach it today, and I, I want to look at it from that angle. So that, that's how we're going to look at uh, Christmas today, God's great rescue mission. Now, uh, we all know that to the culture at large, the the true meaning of Christmas is is almost totally lost. Um, as a matter of fact, surveys, recent surveys, tell us that more and more people are uh, disconnecting Christmas from any religious significance. So they're celebrating Christmas, but for them, it, it's, it's not a religious holiday at all. Um, in, in one uh, survey that was taken, uh, 57% of people, um, down from 64% just three years ago, 57% recognize that there is some uh, spiritual religious component to it, but the, the rest of people don't even acknowledge that. So I think it's safe to say that just culturally speaking, for most people, uh, Christmas is about getting new things, spending time with family and friends. Uh, you know, it's, it's the holidays, but it's not significant uh, religiously. Now, of course, we can kind of understand that. That's just the way the world is, right? But even among believers, the true meaning of Christmas can often be obscured. So in other words, I think that even as believers, we have to stop and, and take a fresh look at Christmas sometimes because even for us, even though we're not losing the religious significance of it, we just can sort of reduce it to um, you know, like a good Sunday school story, uh, the baby in the manger and the, the, uh, the animals gathered around and all of that. And it's all so sweet. And, um, yet there's, there's so much more to it than that. So as I said, Christmas is really God's great rescue mission. And so let's look at it from that point of view. And the first thing that I want to say about this is that the mission was absolutely essential. 
So the biblical teaching regarding our situation as, as human beings is that uh, we are in a predicament that we have no way of getting ourselves out of. So our predicament is one of, uh, the Bible describes it in different ways. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That, that's bad. Uh, we're spiritually blind and living in spiritual and moral darkness. Uh, we are under the dominion of the devil. We're under the authority of Satan. So this is the, this is the condition of humanity, according to the scripture. And the problem is we have no way of delivering ourselves from this. So if there's going to be deliverance, it's, we're going to have to be rescued. Somebody from the outside is going to have to come in. And, and that is exactly what the story of Christmas is about. Um, Paul Tripp said this. Uh, Paul Tripp is a writer. Uh, he said, sin is so disastrous and inescapable that the only solution was for God to come and rescue us. And that, that's really an accurate picture of what the case is. Because, of course, being dead in our trespasses and sins, that indicates right there, as, as being dead, we, there's nothing we can do for ourselves. Being blind um, indicates that we don't even realize the state that we're in. And that is absolutely true. Apart from the spirit dealing with us and convicting us, we don't even realize how lost we are. We don't even realize that we are held captive uh, by, by Satan. Uh, remember the, the Christmas song, God rest ye merry gentlemen, um, that Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to free us all from Satan's power. We don't even realize we're under the power of Satan quite often. We're, we're blind to that. We don't recognize our actual state. Um, Cheryl and I have been watching the Netflix um, production of, of The Crown. The Crown is about the, the British royal family and uh, particularly, mostly about the queen. And um, in, the, in the story that they're telling, it's kind of one of those... Um, you know, it, it's, it's got a historical backdrop, but then there's the fictional parts that are added to it. So it's kind of like historic fiction. And, um, and, and so in one of the episodes, they have uh, Billy Graham in London. Billy Graham was in London in 1954, and he was doing these crusades in London that really uh, ended up radically impacting the country positively uh, through the conversion of many people. But anyway... Um, the aristocracy at the time, they were just really annoyed that this, uh, this like country boy from North Carolina would come and insinuate that they somehow were sinners and needed a savior. And uh, the aristocracy, except the queen, the queen was very much in support of what Billy Graham was doing and very sympathetic toward the message and had personal meetings with him and uh, you know, it was real, they, they did an amazing job in the series of depicting what really happened there and, and her sympathies toward the ministry of Billy. But my point is this, at one point in the film, there are a number of politicians and they're talking about, this was the talk of the town at the time, this, this Billy Graham guy doing these crusades. And one of the politician says something to the effect that, you know, what, what really bothers him is 
just the, the reference to uh, this being a crusade, he said, because it gives the impression that we, the British people, are no better off than the pagans. In other words, you know, this guy's talking to us like we're sinners. And, and of course, we're, we're British. We're not sinners. And we're not just British, but we're the British aristocracy. We're not sinners. Oh, this is the condition of all of us, really. We don't even realize the predicament that we are in. So if anything is going to change, it's going to have to come from the outside. The mission was absolutely necessary to change our uh, status. So second thing is that the mission was planned. Now, think it... I want you to think with me about like a, a rescue mission. Now, um, a rescue mission is something that there, there's going to be a plan. There's going to be a strategy, and especially this kind of a res rescue mission, because we're not talking about like a search and rescue, like you've got people lost in the, the forest or something like that, which of course is a dangerous situation and would need preparation. But this is more, uh, what the picture that we need to see is more of a, uh, a group of hostages. We, we are in a place of having been taken hostage and we're being held captive. So there, there needs to be a plan. Did you know that the Bible says that this plan was actually conceived before the world was ever even created? So before the world was ever created, God already knew what was going to happen. He knew that there was going to have to be a rescue and he planned for it. The New Testament tells us in a couple of places that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But we, we get some insight in the passage that we read to the fact that there was a plan because Matthew says that the things that were happening there, the things that unfolded that he records regarding Joseph and Mary and so forth, he said these things happened that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophet Isaiah. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah told us, told the, the people of Israel that there would come a time when the Lord uh, would give uh, to Israel uh, a sign, and the sign would be this, that the virgin would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel. Now, Matthew not only tells us that Isaiah prophesied this, but if you jump over to the second chapter and just read the first few verses, uh, there he quotes Micah, another prophet, a contemporary of Isaiah, who tells us the place where all of this is going to transpire, that Bethlehem is the place from which uh, the Messiah will come. So you, Bethlehem, though you're little among the, the thousands of villages in Judah, yet out of you is to come uh, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from eternity. So we see that this mission was planned out and it was uh, foretold in advance the things that would be done. We also need to understand that the mission, like a mission of this nature, the mission was, was costly. There, 
there would be costs to those involved in the mission. Now, I want to mainly focus on the cost to the father and the cost of the son, but I think we need to also include um, the other players in this mission, and, and that would be the two people that we read about in the passage. It would be Mary and Joseph. And for Mary and Joseph, there was a cost. Now, Mary, the cost to her was really her reputation. Now, think of it. Mary was a young girl. She was engaged. And, and in that day and age, she was actually what's called betrothed, which is it's more than an engagement. It's kind of a, a place between engagement and marriage, uh, but it was a legal contract. So if you were to break a, a betrothal, then it, it required a, um, a legal transaction. So this is where she's at in this relationship with Joseph. They're moving toward uh, the final wedding and the consummation of the wedding and all of that. And, and it's as she's in that place that the angel Gabriel appears to her and tells her that she is going to supernaturally conceive a child and she's going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that a virgin is going to conceive and, and bear a son. Now, think about what that meant for her personally. Because although she did understand, and, and she said it in Luke's gospel, the, what we call the magnificent, she did understand that future generations would call her blessed. You know, in her lifetime, that was not the case. Throughout the rest of Mary's life, there was a cloud of suspicion that hung over her, that somehow she was uh, unfaithful to Joseph. That, that cloud hung over her because, of course, Jesus wasn't even accepted as the Messiah. So that would have been uh, the price that Mary uh, would pay, but Joseph would pay a price as well. It would be the price of his own comfort. I mean, you know, here's a man who's betrothed to this woman and he loves her and he's convinced that they're to be together. And all of a sudden she comes to him and says, uh, I'm pregnant and uh, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, those, those two would have probably understood this just like we would today. The, they probably were both like, what? You know, when, Mary, when the angel came to Mary and said, you know, told her that she was going to be that instrument, I am certain that Mary didn't go, oh, right, Isaiah 7, 14. Yeah, that's it. The virgin bearing a child. Okay, that's me. Mary didn't do that, I'm sure. Because at the time, they didn't really understand those prophecies. They were there. But by this time, nobody really knew exactly what that was going to mean. So for Mary, this would have been perplexing. And we know she was perplexed because as we read the fuller account with Luke, uh, Mary's like, well, how is this going to happen? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And so think of Mary going to Joseph and saying, um, well, Joseph, you know, uh, I'm pregnant. Um, by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph would have thought, that's crazy. What do you mean you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit? And he did think that because the text tells us that, that Joseph thought, okay, that's the end of that. But he really cared about Mary. So what was he doing? He was looking 
uh, for a way to, to put her away privately so he didn't make a public spectacle of her. So his, his intention was to put her away. In other words, when Mary came and told Joseph the news about being pregnant by the Holy Spirit, Joseph didn't buy it. He didn't believe it. But then, as we read in the story, it was the angel that appeared to him in the dream that told him that these things were actually the case. And so it was then that Joseph embraced it. But my point is the mission was costly and imagine the, the discomfort that it caused to Joseph, not just at the time, but of course this would have gone on throughout the remainder of their lives. But it was also costly to the more immediate um, people involved and uh, God the Father would be one of them. Now we don't really understand the the relationship, the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. That is, I think it's just beyond our ability to comprehend that. But, but obviously there's, there's something there uh, that is going to change. And the Father is going to send his Son uh, into the world. And this is going to be at a, a great cost to him. And, and like I said, just exactly what that really looks like, ultimately, we don't know. But if you think of uh, just how Jesus was received, if you think of just how Jesus was treated, um, he was rejected, he was despised, he was uh, mocked, he was spurned. Uh, in other words, all of these experiences that, that Jesus underwent, uh, the Father had to observe the rejection of his son. So here's a, this is a great cost, not to mention whatever the cost would have been for uh, the heavenly realm itself. But then there's also a cost for the son. And the cost for the son is that the son who exists with God eternally uh, as God in the form of God, as Paul, as Paul puts it to the Philippians, he's going to now take upon himself human nature. And that human nature is not a temporary arrangement. It is now a permanent situation. So the son is giving up his exclusive deity and he's adding to his deity humanity. Now, let's understand, Jesus never uh, became less than God. He retained his full deity, but he added something to it that previously wasn't there. He added uh, human nature to it. And, and again, this is a difficult thing for us to understand, but it certainly indicates that this was a step down for Jesus. This cost him something. And this is what Paul describes in uh, Philippians chapter two, when he says concerning Christ that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't cling to those prerogatives but he humbled himself and he became of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He condescended, he stepped down. So in a, in a sense, there, there was an element of his glory that, uh, that changed when he became a 
person, when he became a human being. So the mission was costly. The mission was dangerous, even deadly. And again, if, if we think in terms of a rescue mission, um, saving hostages from uh, hostile captors, that's what's happening here. So it's a dangerous mission. The incarnation, sometimes we forget. And this is what I was sort of talking about earlier. When we get a sentimental view of Christmas, we miss the fact that the incarnation was the first step toward the crucifixion. See, we can't separate these two things. You know, at Christmas, we, we almost want to just not talk about the, the crucifixion and all that. But that's Good Friday. That's, that's Easter. We'll talk about that in April. But, you know, it's December right now. Let's just talk about Christmas. Let's talk about the baby and the manger and, oh, how sweet, you know, and all of that. That's what I mean, like a sentimental view of it. No, the, the reality is the incarnation is the first step toward the crucifixion. Jesus comes on this rescue mission, and in order to rescue us, he is going to have to give his own life in, in exchange for ours. That's how the rescue is going to take place. So we see it's a dangerous mission. We see it's really ultimately a deadly mission. In 1976, it was July 4th, actually, 1976, the Israeli Defense Forces, they liberated 102 uh, Israeli and Jewish uh, victims of a terrorist hijacking. Uh, a number of terrorists had, had hijacked um, the Air France Flight 139, and they had uh, flown that hijacked plane to Entebbe, Uganda. And they were uh, given safe haven there by Idi Amin, the Ugandan uh, dictator. And the, the threat was, uh, the, the, whole, the whole ordeal was about releasing uh, terrorists from Israeli prisons. And uh, that's what they were seeking to gain. And uh, they had these hostages. They were threatening to kill the hostages. So what ended up happening is the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, they sent out a rescue mission. And they pulled off one of the greatest rescue missions in modern times. They saved 102 out of 106 of these captives, of these hostages. But in the, in the course of this, so, um, well, the, the operation was originally called Operation Entebbe because it took place in, in Entebbe, Uganda. But it later became known as Operation Jonathan. And the reason it was renamed Operation Jonathan was because uh, the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu, who was the, the, the leader of the, the force that went into liberate the people, he was killed in the attempt. He was the only one that died uh, of the forces in the battle. He's the older brother of the current prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, but that is an example of a fairly modern rescue mission that shows us that these are dangerous and even deadly kinds of missions. 
And that is the mission that Jesus came on. And he knew it in advance. He knew that the mission would be dangerous. He knew that it would actually be deadly. He knew that the, the manger was the, the first stop on the way to the cross. But he did it because of his love for us. And that brings us to the fifth point, that the mission was personal. See, the mission was personal. Now, going back to that, and by the way, that, uh, that rescue mission there in Entebbe, that was made into a film called The Raid on Entebbe. If you've never seen that film, it's a, it's a really thrilling, thrilling film. And, uh, and it's, it's one of those, you know, uh, sitting on the edge of your seat, biting your fingernails kind of a thing. And, and the really painful part of it is it just seems like it, it just you know, everything was, was done and sealed and everybody was liberated and they were on their way out. And it was just right at the very end that Jonathan is killed. And it's one of those things where you're just like, oh no, you know, it just, that just didn't seem like it should have happened. But, but these, these men, of course, went into this knowing the danger, but they did it out of duty. Now for the rescue mission that we're talking about, you know, this was more than a duty. This was really a family matter. And that's what we need to see. This is a personal thing. You see, because mankind is created in the image of God. And, and we are, you know, in that sense, we are the children of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but when you read the genealogy uh, of Jesus that's found in Luke's gospel, um, unlike Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel's genealogy takes us back as far as Abraham, but, but Luke's gospel takes us all the way back to Adam. And, and Luke's gospel says this, it says that, um, that Seth was the son of Adam. So that's the, the son that they connect Adam with. Seth was the son of Adam Adam was the son of God. What it says in Luke, Adam was the son of God, showing that humanity is, is God's, we're, we're God's children, we're God's offspring. So in a sense, it would be like um, the, the father in sending Jesus, we can actually say this, that the Christmas story is really the story of the father sending the older brother to rescue the other children who have been abducted and who are being held captive by their tormentors. That's, that's a biblical way of understanding this. I think sometimes we're, we're sort of a little bit uncomfortable with thinking of Jesus as our older brother, but do you know that the scriptures warrant that? They allow us to do that. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our older brother in that sense. And um, the author of Hebrews quotes from uh, an Old Testament passage where the Lord is saying that he is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. So that's really the picture. It's a very personal picture. It's as though the father, because all of this happened before 
time began, before the, the world was ever created, you know, it's as though the Father would say, you know, this is, you know, as we create and as we bring this new family into existence, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be taken captive. They're going to be held hostage. And we will have to rescue them. And it's as though the son would say, well, Father, I will go. I, I will be the one to rescue them. That's what could have transpired in the, the conversation within the Father, Son, and Spirit when all of this was being conceived, because that's what was actually happening. And so we can understand it in that way. It's a personal thing with God. Sending his son into the world, was, it was all a very personal thing. It was all a family, member, a family matter. Jesus is on a mission to rescue family members. So you see, when we think of it like that, it really makes it clear that Christmas is not mainly about the things that most people in the culture think it's about today. Christmas really isn't mainly about gifts or decorations or food or family or friends or, or vacation, time off work. That, those are the things that it's become to, to be about. Those are the sentimental kind of perspectives on Christmas that I was mentioning. But no, we see that as good as those things are, of course, those are good things, but they're not the main thing which is so much greater and more profound than all of those things could ever be in and of themselves. I mean, we're all blessed when we have good family relations. We're all blessed when we have great friendships. We're, it's a wonderful thing to be together. It's great to have those meals and those, those are all great things, right? But they pale in comparison to the real meaning of Christmas. So for those who, that, that's what Christmas is. That's what they see it as. For those who, would say, well, I don't really see any religious significance to Christmas. Well, you're missing the whole point because it is, <laughs> it is entirely religious in the best sense of the word. It's about a loving father who sent his son on a mission to free us all from Satan's power. That's what's happening here. And to provide forgiveness for our sins and to bring us into a beautiful, personal, eternal relationship with God who loves us with an everlasting love, who has a wonderful plan for us that begins the moment we receive him and stretches into eternity. That's what Christmas is really all about. And if we miss that, if we forget that, if we sentimentalize it and just think of it, like I said earlier, as just the baby in the manger, if we fail to see what was really happening here, then we are impoverished as a result of that. We want to understand it for what it truly is, for what it truly was, because this is the, the objective was to bring us back to God. That's the objective. That's the purpose. That's God's intention, that God and sinners would be reconciled. 
brought back to him. That, that's what we need. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because you can have all of those other things. You could have the best Christmas in the uh, current understanding of it imaginable. You could get the best gifts you ever got. You could be with the greatest people that you were ever with. You could have the best food that you've ever eaten. It could just be the most wonderful thing. But you know what? Once it's over, it's over. And it fades and it passes and it's just a memory. But what God has for us is something that's permanent, something that's lasting, something that goes on and on, something that changes our life. It changes our destiny. It takes us out of the realm of darkness and brings us into light. It takes us from a place of, of being aimless and, and no connection with our maker and brings us into a relationship with him. You see, that's really what Christmas is about. It's about God making a way for his estranged children to come home and to have a relationship with him. That's what it is. And that's how we need to understand it. This past week, um, a great uh, theological voice and a great defender of the faith, uh, R.C. Sproul, he passed away this week. Some of you might know his name. Uh, some of you might not. But R.C. Sproul was a, uh, a brilliant man. He was a pastor. He was a professor. He was a, 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 an apologist, a real defender of the faith, um, written several books, and, and, you know, just kind of a giant in uh, the 20th century Christian world. So, Anyway, he went to be with the Lord this week at the age of 78, and there were all kinds of tributes to him uh, online and different people talking about him. And I, I was familiar with him and have been blessed by his ministry and his books. And uh, so anyway, I saw this, uh, I saw um, on Twitter, somebody had posted a, um, an interview with him. And so I thought I, I, I would listen to it. And as I was listening, I was totally fascinated by his story that I didn't know. I kind of just had the assumption because of his stature as this great theologian, I, I, you know, I kind of just had the assumption that he grew up in the faith, he grew up in the church, and he just you know, moved, moved into this and uh, kind of naturally became this, this great theological mind and all that. But to my surprise, the, the interviewer asked him to tell his story about becoming a Christian, and it was fascinating to me because here's, here's what happened. So he grows up in Pittsburgh. He uh, has no connection with uh, biblical kind of Christianity. He grows up in a nominal, I think it was a Methodist at one point, and then a Presbyterian, uh, mainline liberal church, uh, where it's just church, just religion. No, no belief in the Bible, no preaching the gospel, none of that goes on there. So you know, he just grows up in that, and he goes off to college. And at college, uh, just, you know, on a particular occasion, him and a friend, they were going out one evening, they were going out to get some drinks. And on their way to the bar, the pub, whatever it was that they were going to to get their drinks, uh, he realized that he had forgotten his cigarettes back in his room. So he didn't want to go without his cigarettes. So he went back to his room to get his pack of cigarettes. And when he went back to go to his room, there in the lobby of the dorm, there was a young man that was there, and the young man just said, hey, could I, 
could I talk to you guys for a minute? Could I, could I tell you a little bit about Jesus? And they just said, well, I guess so. You know, I'm going to get my cigarettes, but I, you know, I guess I'll give it a listen for a second. Well, you know, he just goes on to tell the story how, how that conversation completely captivated him. And after listening to this young man, he went back to his room that night, got on his knees, realized he was a sinner and asked God to save him. And that forever changed the direction of his life. And you know, when I heard that, I thought, wow, I never would have guessed that was the background of, of this great theological mind. Who would have guessed? And who would have guessed that it was just some random guy at college who decided to share his faith that was the, the trigger to bring him to trust in the Lord. So, um, but here's the thing. As, as he's telling the story, he says, you know, he says the young man didn't really, he didn't lay out like a step-by-step kind of a gospel presentation. He didn't ask me if I wanted to become a Christian or receive the Lord. He said, but here's what happened. He said, when I listened to this young man talk, what I knew is that this, this young man knows God. He knows God. He's speaking about God in a way that is so personal and so familiar that he knows God. And I want to know God like that. So it was just this, this young man's, you know, passion and, and love for Jesus. That was the, the very thing that God used to bring R.C. Sproul to faith. And, and I thought about that. So I was talking to my wife, who yesterday was up in L.A., and uh, she had the invitation to go up to the Fred Jordan mission there on Skid Row and to share a gospel message. And she was telling me about the several hundred people were there, and she gave the gospel message, and then she um, you know, she asked for a response and she said at first she asked for a hand response. She said, but the sun was kind of in her eyes. So she couldn't see who was responding. So she said, well, you know, forget raising your hand. If you want, you know, if you want to know this, Jesus, this wonderful counselor, um, this child that is born, this son that is given, she preached from Isaiah nine. She said, then just stand up. And she said, almost everybody stood up and there were hundreds of people there. And she's like, oh my, uh, well, okay. So, you know, then she prayed with them. And, and afterwards, one of the ladies said to her, she said, you know, we've never really seen a response like this. That was amazing. But so she's telling me that story. And I said, you know, honey, and here's the amazing, the amazing thing. So I told her the R.C. Sproul story that I just told you. And I said, you know, you never know who in that crowd might be the next R.C. Sproul or someone like that. Someone who just responded to the gospel, the clear message of Christmas, and gives their life to Jesus, and it now sends them on a trajectory that nobody could have ever imagined. That's what happens, because the Christmas message is about coming into a relationship with God, the God who made us, the God who has a plan for our lives. It's about our sins being able to be forgiven through the death of Christ that became possible because of the incarnation, God becoming a man, God the Son becoming a man. It's because of all of that that all of this is possible. And so 
today, as we close today, I just want to say this. If you are here today, and if you can't say with certainty that you know the Savior, you can't say with certainty that you know your sins are forgiven, you have a relationship with God, He's at work in your life, you are following His plan, you know that when you die, you will go to be in the Lord's presence, not because of what you've done or not done, but because of what Jesus did. If you don't have that confidence, in other words, in that, then you've missed the whole point of Christmas. The whole point of Christmas is to give us the gift of eternal life. And if you don't have that, please don't go anywhere until you get that until you get that resolved. It's the greatest thing possible. There, there's nothing like it. You know, the longer I live and the more I go on in life, I just am so thankful that when I was in my early 20s that the Lord saved me. I think, man, where would I be without Jesus? And just what a, what a glorious thing it is to know him. And as we look around us and we see so many that, that don't know him, uh, may God open their eyes. But you never know. It might just be because we're excited about him and the relationship that we have. And as we just talk about that and, you know, somebody listening to that might say, I want that too. I want what that young man or that young woman has. I, I want to know God like they do. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is God's, the story of God's great rescue mission. He sent his son to liberate us and to bring us home, to bring us into the family so that we might be the children of God. And so, Lord, we thank you that that is the true meaning of Christmas, that that is the real message of Christmas, that we can be set free, that we can be brought home back into the relationship that we were created to have. Oh, Lord, we thank you that this message is true. And Lord, we think of the, the multitudes of people that will celebrate it without the real understanding of what it is. And we pray that even for those, that there would be an awakening, that there would be uh, a dawning upon them of what's really happening when we talk about Christmas, when we celebrate Christmas. But Lord, I pray especially for any with us today that have yet to open their hearts to you, to receive that gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Draw them to yourself today, we pray. And Lord, as we go into this week and into the next few weeks and this uh, time, this season, where we will be with family and friends and we will uh, enjoy great food together and fun and all those things. Lord, may you bring about and create opportunities for the true story of Christmas to be relayed and to be received. We pray in Jesus' name.